Welcome. This is the Down the Rabbit Hole podcast, your regular dose of information security through the tempered lens of the real world experience. Now, on with the show. Once again, welcome. This is Raph Lose with Down the Rabbit Hole podcast. I have an interesting guest today that's uh, an attorney from Silicon Valley, and we're going to talk about the T's and C's of cloud computing because we had an interesting conversation right before this recording, and I thought that this is something everybody would want to listen to, and I figured it's worth 15, 20 minutes of your time. I'm let my guest introduce himself. I'm going to dive right in. Sir, go ahead. Thank you very much. My name is Mark Radcliffe, and I'm a partner at DLA Piper. DLA Piper is a large international law firm, but our, our roots are in Silicon Valley, and I've actually been practicing in Silicon Valley with the same lawyers, just with lawyers added around me for the last 30 years. I am also the head of the cloud computing practice at DLA Piper in the United States. DLA Piper has 4,200 lawyers worldwide. We're in 30 countries, and particularly given the international nature of cloud computing, uh, we're particularly well suited to assist people on cloud computing, and so it's an area that we're really focused on. And focused on also, frankly, because many of our clients, both large and small, are very interested in cloud computing. And I work with a lot of startups, about 50 at any one time, and obviously cloud computing is very hot in the startup space right now. That's fantastic. It's uh, good to have an expert because we always say when we're talking on these podcasts, say, I'm not a lawyer, but, so I can say, I have a lawyer with me now. So the conversation we had right before we decided that this was being a good topic to record, we were talking about the fact that software T's and C's are pretty well known. They've been around for a while, but you made a comment that as we go into the cloud and do cloud computing, uh, none of that applies anymore. So explain what that means and, and give us a little bit about that. Sure. Well, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm old enough to actually remember when the terms for software licensing were still in process and still there was a lot of negotiation going back and forth. But as you said, in most cases, those terms are pretty set. There's a reasonable understanding in industry what they what they mean and what's reasonable although that's beginning to change now with all the patent lawsuits where people wanting more patent protection for patent infringement. So they evolve, but once again, there's, a, would say, a pretty wide consensus in the industry. In cloud, we're at the very beginning of the industry, and the point that I made is cloud is different from software because software worked within a legal framework. A legal framework is called the Uniform Commercial Code, Article 2, and it's basically a the part of the Uniform Commercial Code that deals with what are called transaction goods. Why does that make a difference? Well, it makes a difference because that legal framework gives certain default positions if you don't deal with them in the contract. So the reason that all of your contracts relating to software, if they're reviewed by a lawyer at least, um, have all that language and caps that talks about merchantability, fitness for a particular purpose, consequential damages, all that sort of legal folder all is because of Article 2. And Article 2 basically says if you don't put those disclaimers in, then the default provisions apply and you're stuck with them. So cloud computing is very different. Cloud computing is a service, and really Article 2 does not apply to it. 
Um, it may be applied what, by what's called analogy because judges like to have a framework with which to decide things. But really, the uh, cloud computing is completely contractual. It's whatever you agree to is what you get. And so even though, once again, there may be this analogy issue, by and large, it's whatever people agree to. And I think what's interesting for me is because I saw this in the software area is right now we're struggling with a new industry, an industry that has a lot of uncertainties in liability, what's reasonable, who should take responsibility for things like security breaches, particularly since there can be shared responsibility for the creation of the security breach. And that means that you need to look at that contract very carefully. Many of the contracts provide actually very little on the part of the cloud service vendor. For example, they'll say they'll use reasonable commercial efforts to provide appropriate security. What does that mean? Is that is there any substance to that? Who determines I, what's reasonable? Well, ultimately a court, and that's part of the problem, is that, frankly, um, there isn't very much substance to that um, because there aren't standards that have been developed in cloud computing. They're evolving, and I think if you're a user of cloud computing, you actually really want to try to get more certainty there. And so particularly... One of the challenges is it's pretty um, unclear or opaque, really, as to what cloud service vendors are doing from the point of security. And I was just involved recently in a large negotiation where we tried to get more data on that. We're not terribly successful, I have to say. We even tried to say, look, well, what you will do is you'll, you'll um, agree to comply with industry standards of the top five cloud service vendors. And that, unfortunately, didn't quite make it through the... Is there such a thing as industry standards in cloud right now? I mean, who get, again, who gets to determine that? And to what extent do we, do we know what it is? Where's, is there a document somewhere that people can go to? Well, there's certainly no document. And over, there probably are standards, but given the fact there are now over 700 cloud service vendors, um, everybody from you know small startups to major companies, um, I think you can say that whatever the industry standard is, it's pretty low because you're, you're really talking about an industry that has an enormous variation in the companies that are doing it and how they're doing it. And that's why the, the attempt we made was to say, look, we don't want industry standards. We want the best and brightest and you know, the the people that are at the cutting edge of security. We did actually get them to change from the language which I mentioned to something that did say industry standards, although once again, the problem is, what are they? And what happens is the industry standards are something that evolves over time, but it's something that uh, you can, you, you have to do due diligence to find out what they are. And actually, there's a classic example in the legal area about liability based in the 30s, we read these cases when we're in law school and they stick with us for many years. And that case involved the question of whether or not uh, a, a tugboat that was involved in an accident which didn't have radar on it. Oh, I read this. I, I remember this case. This is cited quite a bit. Because, uh, go ahead, finish the case, but I think I remember this. Well, it's a famous case. I didn't realize that you were reading law. Well, I, well, I wasn't reading law. Yeah. I, well, I, I don't really read law because it's way too complex for me, but I, I've heard this case cited someplace before. I think it's the same one. It Well, it is. It's a famous case, and what the judge decided was that in the early 1930s, 
having radar on your tugboat was a requirement. That was an industry standard. So that's the way industry standards get set. Hopefully we won't have to have a lot of accidents to, you know, or security breaches to determine what the standards are. But I do think that the industry needs to move to a more transparent standard of providing information and assurance on security. And, and there needs to be a clear definition of who's responsible uh, depending on how the incident plays out. So I, I keep hearing people say, especially in being a, as a cloud vendor and having vendors that I know, that if we as an industry don't come up with our own standards, and no offense to the attorney sitting next to me, but the lawyers will. Well, no offense taken, but they're absolutely right. Even worse, the government may. I think oh, that's, that's a worst case scenario because that's, that's so many far steps removed, it's not even funny, right? I don't think it's the best way of doing it. Let's just say that. I'm from Silicon Valley. We believe the government can be of assistance in setting frameworks. We don't think they're very good at choosing technologies or choosing uh, rules for governing technology. What's the speed at which regulations come out? Usually by the time it gets introduced, reviewed, approved, and goes into law, it's left that the actual technology behind it's up you know if you've got a technology specific regulation odds are by the time it gets implemented and is, and is enforceable it, it's long history you're exactly right and frankly the best example of that was something that happened in the early 1980s uh, called the semiconductor chip protection act because in the 80s there was a lot of concern about the japanese basically taking american semiconductor chips uh, taking the layers off layer by layer and exactly copying them so the government, after a lot of effort, passed the law to prevent that, and that law was great. It was a wonderful law dealing with the technology, which was at that point five years old. And what happened is people would reverse engineer the chips, then they'd use the new design software, which didn't exist when the law was written, and they'd change the three-dimensional configuration. So that law passed in, I think, early 1980s. I think it's been used in five cases since then. So not a big success. but goes to your point that you you know government is not the right solution here but if unfortunately if industry doesn't move given how important cloud computing is given the chance for sort of very public very awkward problems i think you may find government regulation in place so what do we i mean as a i got a lot of folks that listen to this that are consumers in the cloud space uh, the companies they work for are either migrating to the cloud sanely by company policy or are finding themselves with their data in the cloud because somebody installed a you know remote uh, synchronization tool which we don't need to go into but mm. they're, they're in the cloud one way or another right head head first or feet first what kind of advice do we give people like that because that that is just uh, it, it's a scary place to be in I mean I'm, I'm a consumer I'm buying into the cloud I look at a t you know some T's and C's from my vendor Who's gonna Who's gonna determine you know what they're responsible for or where their culpability, reliability, um, things like responsibility, uh, you know, liability for you know all the abilities, right? Where do they turn? Where do people turn? Well, I think ultimately businesses respond to pressure from their customers. So I, I think it's important for uh, people who are going in the cloud, particularly companies that are going in the cloud where there's a lot of dollars on the table to push the cloud service vendors to, to be more transparent, to take more clear responsibility for what they're doing. And, you know, and I think the Cloud uh, Security Alliance is one good forum for, to help do that. But I also think that individual companies need to read the agreements they're signing up for, and they will be 
surprise, I would say. For example, there's a number of the major cloud service vendors that have decided that five minutes is not really downtime. So in other words, if you read their agreements, you'll see that if, you're, if the system is down for five minutes, it doesn't count against your uptime guarantee. No particular reason why five minutes should be there, but it's it's one of the it's now become a standard. You see, it's you saw it in uh, you know first in Amazon, now it's rolling out in Rackspace and a number of other cloud service Wait, vendors. Hold the phone. I don't mean to interrupt you, but five minutes. You know, it wasn't the promise of the cloud always available, always on, always usable. I mean, what five minutes? That could mean a million dollars to a company. It could mean a lot of money to a company. And uh, once again, the issue is why did they choose five minutes? I don't think we know. But it's one of these um, industry standards that are now beginning to percolate through the agreements you see in the industry. And so once again, people need to read the agreements. They need to say, look, if I'm getting cloud services that are supposed to always be available, five minutes doesn't make sense to me. And so I, once again, I think it's a matter of the uh, customer really looking at the agreement and pushing back on the cloud service vendors. Interesting. I mean, this is such a new landscape for a lot of us. And like I said, some companies are going to the cloud either head first or feet first. You'd hope they're going feet first because head first hurts, especially considering the water is sort of shallow right now to use continued bad analogies. But, uh, you know, I always worry about organizations that dive into, and we saw this when we were doing a lot of technology outsourcing and particularly in software development. And you've probably seen this as well, where you know, who's you offshore or outsource software development, you get a major bug, it causes a major outage, you know, either you get hacked or something bad, forget security for a second, it causes major downtime because your system crashes due to usability problems or performance problems, and, you know, you come to a peak in the holiday season, you're an online retailer and the software performs terribly. Well, the vendor said it was supposed to perform greatly, but in the contract said it's supposed to, but now what do I do? I've, I've potentially lost, you know, $100 million in revenue, can I go after them? You know, am I stuck? This is all that all over again, isn't it? Well, there are certainly a lot of similarities between outsourcing and the cloud, um, particularly in the sense that you're basically shifting control of the operations to someone else. And ironically, my colleagues in the UK mentioned that there's a law in the UK that basically says if, you know, if you're an outsourcer, you basically have to take on the employees that used to perform the same functions at the company that's doing the outsourcing. Oh, that's and interesting. They, but more importantly, they said, you know, that law probably applies to the cloud. And we are talking with a major cloud service vendor, they're going, oh, we didn't think about that. The analogy is a very good one. And I think, once again, I think we've seen outsourcing become much more common in part because I think people have understand that you, the need for governance, the need for um, carefully thinking through your requirements and making sure you have meaningful remedies. And that's, I think, one of the challenges we have in the cloud right now. Basically, most in most cases, your remedies are a, a service credit. So you get more cre more service for free. <laughs> more of that service that just costs you potentially your business for free. Fantastic. Yeah, it, probably not a, not the best remedy. And so, <laughs> you know, there's a trade-off here too. I mean, uh, you know, just to, for a minute to take the perspective of the cloud service vendors, you know, they're providing a very low-cost service. It's very difficult for them to be on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars of damages if their cloud goes down. So the question is, where do we strike that balance? And right now, if you read the cloud service vendor agreements, they're taking a very protective uh, position from their point of view. The clients are signing it, right? That's correct. I think one of the, 
uh, they're signing it, but I think now people are beginning to recognize, look, if I'm putting something important up there, uh, it, uh, I really need to look at the agreement. I need to negotiate the agreement. And you can negotiate the agreement. If there's enough dollars on the table, you can certainly negotiate it. Although sometimes you have um, some challenges because, for example, we were doing a deal where we negotiated for eight months. We're two weeks away from signing. And then we discovered, uh, and we were basically the terms were quite different from their standard terms. We discovered we were actually bound by the standard terms because 18 months ago, some engineer had you know signed up because oh, he wanted no. to test out the service. Well, we managed to put a clause in the agreement that said, no, this agreement supersedes the, the standard terms. But nonetheless, those are the sorts of things that happen that you need to be aware of. And so I, I, I think it's important to recognize that for certain things, the, cloud, the standard cloud service vendor agreements are fine. Small, medium enterprise, something where it's non-core. But if you're putting major parts of your you know, corporate infrastructure up there, if you're putting, for example, I just did a deal where we put up uh, all of the um, sales data for, uh, you know, on one of the big CRM platforms for a global Fortune 50. And we spent a long time negotiating that because we wanted to make sure that we got the degree of certainty that we felt we were entitled to given the amount of money we were spending. And so you can get them to change the conditions, but you have to ask. You have what, to have leverage, right? You have to, well, you have to ask and you have to have leverage. And I think over, but I think what's really important is to participate in industry forums to help uh, people move towards uh, what I think is a more reasonable allocation of risk from what we've got right now. Okay. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. And I just, you know, I'm going to leave it to you, give you a minute or two here, what kind of advice would you give folks that are staring at a cloud service provider contract? Maybe they understand it, maybe they don't, maybe they have uh, you know enough clout to push their vendor to change some T's and C's, maybe they don't. What's What kind of advice would you give? Well, I think it's very important to do it in the context of what you're trying to achieve. If you're putting minor corporate operations out on the cloud or things that you may not care a great deal about, then the standard agreement may be satisfactory. But if you're putting important corporate operations in the cloud, then I think it's critical that you take a look at the, the vendor's agreements. They are quite different right now. And you need to give yourself enough time to negotiate with them because obviously what they want to do is just use their standard agreement. So build into the your, your time frame the need to do the negotiations. Mark, you've been a fantastic guest. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you very much. Awesome. Well, that wraps up another episode. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, previous episodes, this topic or its guests, I encourage you to continue the conversation. Share the podcast link. Discuss with your colleagues. You can always hop on over to my blog over at hp.com forward slash go forward slash white dash rabbit. Or you know how to find me on Twitter. So until next time, my friends.